Love the British monarchy? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. All right. Um, I'm just going to get this out of the way because I think it's so offensive when people um, say my name incorrectly. So this is going to the beginning of this podcast is basically <laughs> going to be a game where I try to execute your beautiful last name correctly. Uh, Kinsey Schofield here with the Today for Daily podcast. Jonathan, I'm just going to I'm not going to do it. You do it. Tell me how to pronounce it correctly. Sachidoti. Such a daddy. Isn't that so beautiful? So I was just telling Jonathan that I watched literally 40 videos of him all over the world discussing Bradley Cooper, discussing the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. And it's amazing how we as hosts and reporters and anchors can slaughter such a beautiful last name. So I'm, I, I greatly appreciate you doing that for me. Can you tell me the origin of your last name? Yes. And, and by the way, it's forgiven to all of my colleagues around the world who haven't got it right, even though someone's just said it in their ear, uh, because it's not it's not a British name. It's an Italian name. My my late father was Italian and um, it means priest, literally. So um, it's it's a, a name I'm not expecting most English speakers to be familiar with. So I'm, I'm very forgiving and I'm just very grateful to be invited on your show. So that's uh, that's the first thing to say. Oh my goodness. Well, it's a long time coming. I, I, you know, I think I should have probably had you on way sooner because I read your commentary regularly. Um, you're one of the most sought after royal commentators and really, you know, you're an actually a brilliant political commentator too. I met you at the Queen. Sadly, I met you at the Queen's funeral, but um, I immediately was connected to you and I enjoyed your company. You had your head in your computer. So I was so intimidated to speak to you at first, but you had such a friendly face. And then, you know, the, the, the longer the day went, the more we actually got to communicate with each other. And I was so grateful to meet you. Where did your interest in the royal family come from? Well, first of let me say thank you. That was that's really a uh, kind and sweet introduction and very generous of you. And it is true that it was uh, that day, the Queen's funeral, the late Queen's funeral, Queen Elizabeth II, when we met in the green room, I think it was for, for Fox News, um, both of us part of the coverage of that. And it was a, a really unusual and an extremely sad day, obviously for the nation, but as, as a royal watcher, as a journalist, it was fascinating to watch it and to be able to share tiny details and stories with an audience around the world, because suddenly the whole world was watching. This was literally, you know, a world event that once in a generation. Uh, and so I think that we met in that unusual situation. I'm sorry if I seemed uh, preoccupied in the computer. I was actually, <laughs> for that day, I was working for the Jewish Chronicle, which is the world's oldest Jewish newspaper. And uh, they had briefed me with writing up a massive color piece on the late Queen's funeral from a Jewish angle. I remember that. I kid you I not. So this is why I was buried in the computer, because I was trying to write thoughts and ideas. And, and you know what? I, it was a stunning and very moving ceremony. But I will say one thing about it. There could have been nothing less Jewish. Right. Than the Queen's funeral for mm -hmm. obvious reasons. So I had a tough job that day uh, and uh, it was it was quite an interesting way of looking at things. Well, what was the outcome? Because I did pursue it and I can't mm -hmm. remember. What was the outcome? What, what, what did you when it came to that assignment? How did you mesh those two worlds together? Yeah, well, actually, and, and that goes to actually answer the question you asked me in the beginning, which is how do I end up doing royal coverage? Because I'm not straight up a, a royal commentator or that's not my background in journalism 
I, I really did the whole of the UK for um, various different international stations, and, and I'm also a writer too. Um, but I ended up doing it because part of British news is the royal family. Yeah. And one of the things that's uh, interesting to to do in, in the coverage is to try to connect the royal family and the traditions and the stories and even the gossip with people around the world or people in niche audiences, like in that case, the, the Jewish community wanted a sort of Jewish take on the Queen's funeral. So the result of the piece was observations, really, I think, from, from a sort of Jewish perspective, living in the UK as, as part of that minority group, looking at some someone else's mourning rituals, because ultimately we all mourn differently in different cultures. And so it was quite interesting to think of it in that way. Jewish funerals are actually kind of the direct opposite because they're a very quick and unfussy affair um, by definition. And so that was, I suppose, everybody was astounded at, at the Queen's funeral. It was spectacular. But for a, a community that's used to really low key funerals for even the greatest of people, it also had that added element. And, and then, of course, the royal family had a relationship with the Jewish community over the years. Um, in fact, uh, Prince Philip, uh, his, his mother uh, saved Jewish family during the Holocaust and is remembered as a righteous among the nations in Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, the, the Holocaust uh, Institute there. So they have connections with the Jewish community that made it actually a really interesting uh, exploration, a bit different from some of the more gossipy stuff that we usually do. That is so true. And like my heart burst when you said that about Prince Philip's mother. I, I'm going to have to look into that. I'd never read that before. And I love hearing that. She's actually buried in Jerusalem in, in the uh, Holy Land. So that was her request. She was originally buried in the UK. And then at a certain point, they relocated her remains there, according to her request on the. Um, so it's actually it, it's quite a connection that the royal family have, which I've had the privilege to to cover in that respect for both Israeli television and for Jewish outlets around the world, that the royal family have actually not often spoken about outside the Jewish community, but they have that connection. And I think also bring things forward to King Charles. Um, he's somebody that's always been known to have a deep interest in, in different religions and philosophies. And I think that Jewish people in the UK have felt that. Um, I, I was at a a reception a few years back for the Jewish community in the UK and St. James's Palace with uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And, and it was quite a special moment to be to be there together and, and together with all of the Jewish community, various people from different parts of it and, and different parts of that world um, in the palace meeting the Queen. Uh, so they've had, I think, a tight connection and, and they've always shown a sort of support um, of, of the Jewish community in, in sort of modern, da modern days. Well, that's a, a good way to transition into what I wanted to talk to you about. You know, I think sometimes King Charles's curiosity gets him into trouble and I hate that. But of course, I, he's not my king. So I technically, you know, my opinion doesn't matter. He's my king only in, in hope and dreams. But um. You know, when he did this visit to France, I saw so much criticism about his speech on climate change. And I, unless he's handing me a paper straw, I don't have any issue with him saying we need to explore these other options. Uh, you know, I also saw the headlines about his private jet, which I want to ask you bigger picture. Is that a problem for the royal family in general? Well, we can get to that whenever you're comfortable with it. But you know, when it comes to King Charles's curiosity and his his lust for knowledge and his lust to understand different cultures, different religions, different ways to function, 
that might improve the world. Why do you think the media, and maybe it's not the media, maybe it's the media reacting to the public. Why do you think people are so critical of him? Well, nobody likes a paper straw. I'll agree with you on that. And <laughs> so if, if His Majesty the King does uh, hand us a paper straw, I'm not sure what to do, what the etiquette is. Um, but the answer to the more serious part of what you're saying, I think, is um, he's, uh, he's had an interest when it comes to environmental issues and nature. Uh, he's been interested in that for decades, and, and that's well known. Um, so I think it's not necessarily a surprise if he mentions some of those issues now he is king. Obviously, there's that expectation that he has to be less uh, campaigning in, in his style and his activities than he maybe used to be as Prince of Wales. Uh, I think he's pretty much done that. He hasn't really interfered or said anything political or, or stepped out of, uh, stepped over the mark in, in that respect over his first year as king. Um, but yes, he did talk about the environment um, when he was in France. And some people noted that it was at the same time that, that the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was revising some British uh, ambitions in relation to environmental decisions and rules um, that had been made, phasing out of, of uh, gas cars in, in the UK, gasoline, um, and instead the introduction of all electric cars on the roads, things like that. So. He was seen as downgrading in the media the uh, position of Britain on those environmental issues uh, or delaying them somewhat. And so to hear the king speaking so passionately about how uh, different nations, but in that example, Britain and France, should be pushing towards net zero and all of that at the same time, suddenly took on a bit of a political edge. I'm not sure that was intentional. Um, so some of the coverage did focus on that. But I think generally speaking, that's a safe topic for the king now because he's been talking about it for decades, but it's now something the whole world is talking about. And uh, there is quite a strong consensus, I think, in, in one direction on that. So he's probably not being too controversial when he does occasionally reference uh, those, those sorts of issues. Of course, there are people who, who will disagree, but um, I think it's a, a softish or easy-ish issue for him to speak on. Other issues, he's not been interfering. He hasn't really said much as far as I know about architecture and things like that, that he's been vocal about in the past. Um, and I think generally speaking, he's not put too many feet wrong in, in, in the last year in terms of the activism side of things. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I, I do. I do agree. I thought he had a great year and I thought he had such a great year considering the fact that it you know from an outsider's perspective politically the uk looked like it was in a bit of turmoil you go from liz trust to rishi sunak um you know uh, i can't there is a cost of living crisis as far as i understand there's a migrant crisis i mean mirroring the united states and to know that that stuff's happening in the background you it was surprising how successful of a first year he had i thought he nailed it i thought he had a great first year um, do you think that because uh, remember, do you remember the reports that he'd made comments about migrants being sent to Rwanda? Uh, and it was never confirmed whether or not he said it. But I, I would be curious to know when you said he hasn't mentioned anything else. That's one place where I wonder if he might linger, because I do. I, I, I have heard he's passionate about that. Well, you've got to remember, by the way, that the um, prime minister, whoever it is, uh, has has a weekly meeting with the monarch. It's completely private and there's no one in there, as we know. It's, it's 
Um, in fact, I think it's been made more known and, and speculated about since things like The Crown have, have depicted yeah. it. But there's been other other moments where it's been depicted in, in drama too. Um, but so in a way, he doesn't need to be the activist that he might once have been. Obviously, there were, there were those black spider letters, as they were called years ago, where he hand wrote these letters to those uh, in actual political power. Um, so he's always had a sort of back channel option, but now it's not really a back channel. That's the point. That's, that's how a constitutional monarchy works. They literally meet and have a private conversation. So I'm sure if he's got things to say, maybe that's his opportunity to say them, but no prime minister is obliged to particularly listen to his policy ideas. Um, I would say uh, that's sort of the complicated balance in, in our democracy here. Uh, which of course has as our head of state somebody not democratically elected um sort of the most old-fashioned sense there there by accident of birth so i think you know uh he i think generally if he's got something to say on rwanda and migration well he's got ways to say it that aren't public and won't necessarily be as problematic or embarrassing ah that's such a good point thank you for making it um what do you think when it comes to climate change do you think that there is any issue because and I I've had I've, I've had to have this conversation I know people are going to be mad at me for asking this I've had to have this conversation since since the king's coronation that in the past it's been documented that he can be a little bit jealous if somebody steals the limelight I str I would stress that I don't think maybe that happened with Princess Diana but maybe that he's um, you know matured and that's no longer the issue. Do you see there ever being any friction between King Charles and Prince William over this crusade, over this cause? Does one own it or do they share it? And is this something that they're collaborating on? I think that issue, again, is one that I think is fairly safe for any of them to talk about. And maybe it's, it's therefore not such a competitive area. Um, and I would say that obviously there have always been rumours about competition for attention between different royal houses and different uh, senior royals. Um, no, you know, not not least in the book by Prince Harry, which yeah. he kind of outlines quite a lot of uh, what he sees as difficult infighting and com competition between them. Um, so I. You know, I'm sure some of that stuff does go on. It wouldn't be possible for it not to. Um, but at the same time, I think the palace is well known for working really closely in collaboration with other royal households. And in terms of the monarch and the Prince of Wales, whether it's the current uh, monarch and Prince of Wales or, or the last two, which is, you know, when it was the Queen Elizabeth II and Charles as Prince of Wales, I think there's tight coordination. I think the royal family, especially at senior level and their staff, make sure as much as possible they're all on message together they have you know arrangements where they don't upstage each other by doing major events at the same time on the same day i think that applies also to their thoughts on issues that are, are, are important to the world um now there may be inside them personally a bit of competition or jealousy i'm i sure they're human just like the rest of us even if their blood does run blue uh, and i think that that's inevitable, but you know, they're human beings. So, so let's let them have that as long as it doesn't spill out into public. That's, that's what I said about the political thoughts that the monarch might have. And I think it's what we'd say about this stuff too. And I think that's the rule that Prince Harry is just constantly breaking that, oh. you know, stepping out of being a working Royal is one thing, but literally ripping up the rule book and 
you know, starting a bonfire with it so that you can make money off private thoughts and conversations is just so the opposite of what they do. Um, but I think that's, that's, by the way, obviously the elephant in the room of the, the perfect first year that people have been saying the Kings had, you know, that's been tricky, I'm sure. I had a, a historian, Tessa Dunlap, on my podcast, and she said he she thought that King was good, but she did wish that he would have, you know, had some sort of reconciliation with with Prince Harry. Obviously, I had to pick my job off the floor because I feel like Prince Harry is a, a, very much a liability when it comes to the royal family. Uh, and distance is probably their best bet at this point in time to to ensure that they can keep um control of the situation to 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 keep control of the narrative do you have an opinion on that that you'd feel comfortable sharing do you think it's best that they keep their distance with prince harry or do you think it's a, a poor reflection on the family i think that given that prince harry's stated aim was to step out of the circus to uh, not have the obligations and, and pressures of being a working royal and, and to try and improve his, his ailing mental health because he felt it had suffered as a result of how he was born into that family and the scrutiny that he never asked for. I think given that that's what he said he wanted, uh, we ought to respect the palace for keeping them out of its conversations and ceremonies and, and what have you. I think that's what they asked for. And I think it's reasonable to give it to them. Of course, he's still the son of the king. And so when it comes to events where um, it's appropriate that the king wants his family there, his children, for example, like the coronation, well, of course, he's going to invite them. Um, but I think that it's a, a responsibility in, in respect of, let's say, both Harry and Meghan's mental health they've said themselves that they were made mentally unwell mentally ill by the pressures involved in the family so if you're inviting them i think it's only courteous that you should invite them in a quiet way and let them be be there be visible because that's how it is but don't put the pressures on them that they said they didn't want so i think that a lot of the time people are seeing these things as snubs or as a battle or, or a game of one-upmanship, but I'm not sure that's true at all. I, I think just on a human level, can't we also allow for the possibility that actually they're doing what they were asked to and maybe, just maybe, they're grateful for, for that. Uh, now, plenty of people are cynical and say, well, they're not grateful for it because actually they say they want it out of the limelight, but look what they've done since. And of course, it's a snub if they didn't get front row treatment and get to be on a balcony and all of that. But, you know, that's the game of having your cake and eating it. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody is listening to this podcast and they're not watching this podcast and Jonathan, I apologize if you don't understand this reference. I'm obsessed with Joseph Quinn, the actor. Do you know who Joseph Quinn is? I don't actually. Who is He's he? So handsome. He's so cute. You look just like him. I What did I watch him in recently? Um, well, I watched him. I'm like, well, he's from this is not a reflection on you, but he's from Stranger Things where he's Eddie Munson and I own a shirt with his face on it. No regrets. But you remind me of him in Howard's End. Oh, you remind me of him in Howard's End. That's exactly well, what it is. <laughs> I'm flattered. And if you want a picture of me on a T-shirt anytime, I'll, I'll send one over. <laughs> that's it. Uh, it sounds like you've kind of got something similar. Uh, I've just Googled him and yeah, that's, I'll take that. It's fine. Um, yeah, Thank he's, he's a handsome it. man. He's a handsome man. So when it comes to 
when it comes to um, the the criticism King Charles received, and and actually, you know, Prince Harry's been receiving this as well over private chats, private travel when they're talking about the environment. Uh, what are they supposed to do? A lot of these times, it's for their safety. Do you think they? Do you think that they? There is no other way. They have to try travel private or. I mean, how do you avoid this kind of criticism, which, you know, at the end of the day is is kind of fair? It is kind of fair because, you know, if, if, if never mind royalty, if you're going around telling people, oh, the world's burning up and we're permanently damaging our own existence here because we're taking too many flights and burning too much fuel. But in order to do that, you are literally burning fuel and taking tons of flights. I suspect it just means people think not just that you're a hypocrite, but that maybe you don't believe what you're saying in the first place. It's just not great messaging. Um, so do I think they have any options? Well, of course, I mean, not they're the royal family. They're going to fly around places in planes, not go on, you know, boats powered by by the wind. Um, it wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't take, it wouldn't work. Uh, however, um, might work for Greta Thunberg. That's what yeah. I'm trying to say, but I'm not yeah. sure for the king. Uh, but what I, you know, who doesn't expect a royal family to be flying places in private jets or military aircraft or high security? I mean, really, it's. Yeah. I think it's one of those funny things in the media. Sometimes we love to find a story of hypocrisy or a story that makes people go ha. And, and this is one of them. It's not just them. Everybody gets it. I was just reading a piece earlier about how the BBC has a climate editor who they literally fly around the world to different uh, climate story hotspots to talk about what's going on there and, and how, you know, how it's being caused by all, all the, uh, the carbon emissions. So I think anyone who's trying to talk about that issue on the public stage will battle with that idea. Unless, as I said, like Greta Thunberg, they really, really, really mean it and travel places by slower, less efficient, but maybe more environmentally friendly means. I, I just can't expect. I mean, does anyone believe it? Does anyone believe that there's another way? It's a t it's tough because I when I when I read the article, I go, oh, this doesn't look good. But at the same time, I can't imagine them traveling. It's like Air Force One. You know, they are it's you know, they they have their own little safe way I, that they travel. I, 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 I remember writing a bit of a cheeky uh, post when Joe Biden came uh, to the UK and met with the King. And I think he was here for like less than 24 hours. Um, yeah. And they had this meeting, uh, I can't remember now if it was in Windsor Castle, uh, where uh, I can't remember Biden either, came. It was, it was yeah. literally, you're right, it was a flash in the pan. It was just over. We blink and you miss it. I think, yeah. and I remember, so what had happened was, so that, well, it was, you know, I, the cheeky, post I wrote was, you know, two elderly men have met to talk about climate change and it involved one of them taking a massive private jumbo jet to the UK, then helicopter and uh, to the, uh, to, to Windsor Castle. Uh, there was a, a convoy of, I think something like eight rider cars with him, including the beast, uh, which had all been flown over to the UK as is the case for presidential visits. Then when he got out of the helicopter in Windsor Castle, he was driven a sort of 10 meter walk. Uh, and then they went inside and talked about climate change and the environment. So I think <laughs> sometimes we've got to look at those things and think, hang on a minute. Like, obviously this is what a presidential state visit looks like. Um, 
and I don't think it was a state visit, but anyway, a presidential visit. Obviously, this is what a visit to the king looks like. But at the same time, this is not what uh, an environmental discussion looks like. And just it was like the two things hadn't been put side by side. Um, so I think that one was maybe a bit of a bad example. Um, but you know what? Most people watched it, loved the glamour and the spectacle and the pageantry. I'm not sure they really thought about that. What did you think about the the glamour and the pageantry of the France visit? Because I think I made some, yeah, we, we've been talking about this kind of, uh, this theme kind of like under the radar, but sometimes the press just likes to rag on the royal family, basically is, you know, what- No this, way, really? Yeah, yeah. And I think I disappointed a couple of people that asked me for comment because I was obsessed with the Dior. I was obsessed with the <laughs> idea of Love Actually's Prime Minister Hugh Grant there. I loved the glitz and glamour of that visit. But some people said it was it was a poor reflection in a cost of living crisis. It was a poor reflection based on the fact that this was a trip that happened at a later date because of the chaos that had happened earlier. Um, I think that to keep personally, I think to keep you know as relevant and as important as they have become all over the globe, the royal family has to show out sometimes. Am I wrong? Well, look, you're not, I mean, you're not wrong in any of that. Either side of, of the argument, I think, is, is valid. Um, and, and on the one level, it looked beautiful. It was stunning. Um, and it, down to the fact that, you know, they had matching navy blue gowns that I thought it was just like, wow, that's coordination. Um, yeah. So I think that it was... It was beautiful. And I think one of the jobs of the royal family is in its official actions like that is, is to show, you know, this sort of classy, glamorous, um, ancient, historic, traditional, respectful image. Uh, we saw it obviously recently for the Platinum Jubilee at times. We saw it more in, in the funeral and also in the coronation to sort of massive scale. Um, but I think that it's nice sometimes that it's happening not just for massive tragedies or massive weddings or coronations, but for something a bit more um, everyday, if you can call something that looks like that everyday. Um, but anyway, I think that so on that side, I, I thought it was you know nice to watch and, and it was um, impressive. On the other side, yeah, um, this is the criticism a royal family will always suffer from in, in this day and age. How can you do all that while people can't afford to live, while people right. can't afford to heat their houses, can't afford to eat, can't afford general life, can't repay their mortgages at the moment, interest rates are rising, etc., etc. And they say it looks tone deaf to push out, you know, all that luxury in front of people. Um, I can't argue with that either. I mean, it, it's right. For some people, it's going to be, as they say, triggering. Um, I think that uh, that's the balance. And I think that's going to be one of the interesting balances that King Charles III has to to keep, has to strike throughout his reign, uh, whether it will be you know long or, or less long. Um, he's going to have a job at the moment. We live in a world where there's just more crisis, perhaps, than than we like to have, whether it's war, uh, whether it's poverty, whether it's, uh, you know, the environment, whatever it is. So I think they live in, in a position of enormous luxury um, and privilege and wealth and, uh, and 
that brings with it pressures and difficulties. But I think that we don't like to hear them whinge about the pressures and difficulties because it seems ungrateful and spoilt um, in the case of uh, Prince Harry and Meghan to many people here. And I think that we also don't always want to see the enormous wealth and extravagance because sometimes it's not the right moment. Um, so again, a balance, and I think a hard one for a royal family. You know, they literally own crowns and things um, to strike. Uh, but I think again, they do a good job because they will. They don't deny the privilege of where they are. They don't try and, and play it down, um, but they do try to lend the attention they get from it to good causes and to helping those in need and to helping the causes that might otherwise get less attention were it not for the glamour that they add. Uh, and and so I think, uh, and not just glamour, I think they add a, a sense of seriousness and honour and, and what have you. So for example, the Earthshot Prize um, that Prince William is, is so keen to champion, well, it's making a glamorous uh, ceremony and series of prizes um, something focused on, on a problem that many in the world are concerned about, but that's bringing so much attention. And, and I think he hopes development and, and forward movement in that area as well to the topic that you look at that and you think, well, only really a Royal could do that. Even a, a major celebrity, it doesn't have quite the same cachet. It doesn't have quite the same oomph, um, clout. And I think that's, that's a great example of how the royal family tries to pick topics which are uncontroversial mostly and which they feel are very important to the world and then bring the power of, of their status to that topic that that issue that cause and and give it the boost it needs so i think um yeah we'll see the king trying to do that as well and the whole of the royal family i think pushing in that direction and now a word from our sponsor. Do I have time for one more question? Yeah, of course. Awesome. Awesome. You have, you know, you're a journalist. Talk to me about Queen Camilla's evolution when it comes to the media, because, you know, obviously I'm a Diana fan. That's now a Camilla fan. But I remember when the headlines were so vicious about her, there's been an amazing transformation and and the media helped her make that in the public and i i mean i've i've seen those polls that aren't necessarily positive towards her saying you know some people don't really recognize her as the queen but for the most part the world has opened their hearts to her and has accepted her as a journalist how much power did the media have in that evolution do you think so I think you're right, and it's, it's interesting to hear you. You know, you're not just a Diana fan, you're probably the Diana fan. <laughs> um, so to hear you say who is now a Camilla fan, it, it just about says it all, I think, about what mainstream opinion has been and how it shifted. So if you think back to 97, if, if you were uh, of age then to be thinking about these things, but I, I remember- God bless you. thank you. So uh, I remember thinking about it uh, when I, I was obviously barely an infant. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I was 17. And I remember waking up to the news when, when Diana died. And um, I remember that in those years up to then and in the years after that, 
Camilla was not a popular figure in British public opinion. And today she is almost without comment called Queen Camilla. Mm-hmm. So the, the gulf between those two positions is, is enormous. And I think that she and all of the work that's gone on around her to rehabilitate her have, have done a, a great job um, of, of reaching that goal. And of course, the king will have been an instrumental part in that. I mean, his life was complicated in his marriage, in his early years, um, as, as, a, as a baby, as a young boy, as a schoolboy, as an older uh, child or teenager, into university age. It was a really complicated relationship he had um, with his own parents, even at times. And I think that there was sense that perhaps the wedding to Diana, many people felt was doomed from the start. There was the forbidden nature of his relationship with Camilla as, as a, she wasn't even a potential wife in those days. So I think that there were a lot of reasons why it happened. Um, and I think that when it comes down to the rehabilitation after Diana's death, uh, the King did an enormously powerful job of doing what he actually maybe thought he should have been able to do years ago. Um, so he did marry Camilla. The queen did give it her blessing. Um, he, he did, in the end, have the queen's blessing for her to be called queen consort. It was Queen Elizabeth who'd said before she died that she wanted Camilla to be queen consort uh, when that time came. And then the smooth and rather quiet transition from queen consort to queen Camilla at the time of the coronation, all of that, it was like a game of chess. And where does the media fall into that? Well, at times the media has been the thorn in the side of the royal family, especially this king and his current wife. I mean, the media was absolutely brutal and vicious in those days. Um, and some would say completely justifiably so. That's a matter of opinion. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, squid, the squidgy tapes, the... Uh, the the tapes between Charles and Camilla, private conversations, extremely nasty for them to have experienced that. And then you say today, well, she's accepted fairly warmly, if quietly, um, even by the media. Again, massive transition. That's masses of work uh, in in building bridges, in showing um, a different side to somebody who has been back then painted really very black and white as, as a baddie in a story about a prince and a princess um, and building the recognition of who that person is, of the work they do, of the things they care about, of their role as a grandmother, as a mother, as a wife uh, in what is a blended family, much more reflective of many people in the world today's families. So I think all of that has been part of that rehabilitation. The press has played a part, but I think sometimes it's been supportive and sometimes Quite the opposite. Well, I, I think as I ask you another question without asking you permission, if I still that's have fine. I, I have as long as I, it's, I love chatting with you. It's great. So oh, what can I say? Thank you and, so much. And about the royal family, like we could talk for hours. I love it. I love it. I guess my my the intent in my question is, it feels like Camilla was public enemy number one, and you're right. There is a lot more that went into it than courting the media. But it feels like there was hope for Harry and Meghan had they listened to Charles and Camilla, had 
they, you know, gone to the king and, and queen consort who were, you know, Prince Charles and um, the Duchess of Cornwall at the time and said, how did you navigate this? How did you ter- transition your brand from, you know, tabloid fodder to, um, you know, Camilla, Camilla runs with celebrities. I mean, she's got, she has book clubs and celebrities attend her book clubs. Now it's, it's really just the most amazing transition. And I feel like there was hope for Prince Harry and Meghan had they wanted it. It just feels like Meghan knew what she knew out of Hollywood, um, you know, as an influencer. And she said, come on over, Harry, let's do this. But for them to say, oh, it was just impossible. No one liked us. The the press was horrible to us and act as if they were the first ones to experience such turmoil. Uh, you know, I think that the king and the queen are such a great example of how you can flip a brand around and have people rally around you. And you just have to make, like, as you said, the right chess moves. Yeah. And I think that the What's been interesting for me, you know, just to, as an observer, as a commentator to watch is the difference between how the press has treated Meghan and Harry now, let's say, um, between that and how the press treated them, let's say, at the time of their wedding. Mm. So pretty much, I mean, there were a few exceptions, but pretty much the coverage of the wedding was everything you'd expect from a royal wedding. And, and the fact that she was in some respect, an unusual bride for um, Prince Harry. Uh, she'd been married before, she was American. Uh, she she was of, of mixed ethnic origin compared to the very white, uh, very British, very uh, young, in the case of Princess Diana, brides that, that royals had taken in, in recent years. Um, that was actually massively celebrated. I think people, were ecstatic at the wedding. I just can't forget the wedding. Everyone remembers this, this wedding. Britain shows royal weddings around the world and they're full of tradition and pomp and, and ceremony. Well, this one had, you know, a gospel choir and, and that, uh, the, the preacher who spoke. And these were not things we're used to seeing in royal weddings. And Britain loved them. I mean, I think people were just so celebrational about it. Yeah. So switch from that to what they get now, which I think is almost cross the board ridicule and mockery. Um, and you've got to ask yourself what changed. So I think one of the things that changed is actually, well, who's looking after their PR and who's looking after that coverage? And maybe it's not quite as Prince Harry saw it in, in Spare in the book where he seemed to feel everything was against him. But despite a few controversies, like when he dressed up as Hitler with a swastika on his arm, which he even wrote about in his own book. Um, in fact, just a little caveat on that. It had always been said he dressed up as a Nazi as a, as a youngster, but actually he's the one that introduced the idea in his book that he was dressed up as Hitler. Um, I didn't he even says, realize that. Oh, yeah. I, well, you see, there's, there's the Jewish Chronicle reporter in me. So I, <laughs> I spotted that when I read it, he's the one that used the word Hitler, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and if I'm not, don't, don't sue me, but, um, please, uh, no, but it, in, I, I'm pretty sure that that is actually what it said in the book. Um, I think you're right. So those moments were covered for sure. Um, obviously the, there was a, an issue as well that he talks about in the book, right? It's about in the book about drugs too, but generally speaking, he got far less. Uh, of this kind of constant barrage of negativity from the press. And that's because the Royal Press Office knows what it's doing. 
And the Royal Press Office actually probably spends a ton of time defending the royal family, stopping bad things being written about them. Yeah, maybe sometimes that does involve a bit of a deal here or there. But I don't think they've got that anymore. I think they've jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. And, you know, the world of tabloid celebrity journalism in Hollywood, I don't need to tell you, is it's pretty vicious. Yeah. And um, I think there's just as much viciousness as they might have had here, but with a whole ton less of respect that people have for the royal family and reverence and and also fear. Because, you know, when you're a royal reporter, if you're... Um, constantly on the attack, you're not going to get the same level of access maybe as if you're a bit fairer or even uh, a bit on the nice side sometimes. And that's one of the difficulties of, of that area of, of journalism is you've got to try to keep your head and keep balance and be critical when needed, but also not totally alienate yourself from them and, and mean that you'll have no access and uh, not be part of future engagements or activities. So I think that there's an element as well of fear among some in, in the media that what they say. Um, and that's not there for Meghan and Harry anymore. I mean, what are they going to lose access to? Meghan's Spotify podcast? <laughs> I think that would be okay. Um, I mean, there is a lot of negativity about them now and it still sells. Ultimately, if their aim is to monetize what they're doing, well, then they are doing all right. You mentioned the palace kind of protecting Harry, but, you know, the, the more we've gotten to know Harry through Spare and through some of these docuseries, Netflix and the Apple Plus docu documentary he did with Oprah, it makes some of us wonder if the palace built a completely different character for him. Do you have an opinion on that or, or do you see that at all? Like Look, maybe we liked somebody that didn't exist. I think that's in a way, I mean, the, the cynic in me says they do that for all of the royal family. But again, in some ways, that's what a lot of PR is across lots of fields. I mean, there are Hollywood actors that we think we know about, but we don't know everything about them. And also, why should we? So I think we feel the same way about the royal family. Like, why should we know all the details? Well, some will say because we're paying for them. Um, even then, I think they deserve some private life. When we think back to Queen Elizabeth II, I always said this around, especially around the time of her jubilee and then, and then her death, sadly, not that long after, the nation really felt we knew her. People, thousands of people queued for 12 hours uh, in the cold, um, snaking their way round to see her lying in state in Westminster Hall after she died. Um, I remember watching that and thinking that you can't really fake that. Um, that's, that's a level of respect and popularity that may have come about through very careful PR as well, but it's real. And I think that if they've created artificial versions or, or enhanced versions of, of the royal family for us, well, that's a great example. All those people felt they knew the Queen, but actually almost nobody knew the Queen. Right. And there's very little any of us can truly tell you about her, especially when it comes to her personal inner life, inner thoughts, inner likes, passions. Um, few people close to her knew that, that stuff. Um, and yet we all felt we knew her. So I think the same is true for all the other royals. I think they're now doing a great job of working on the king because he was not always the most popular person in the country. But I mean, again, just think back to the, the 90s. 
And he is now, I think, becoming a bit like the grandpa of the nation. And I think that they did that with Queen Elizabeth. I think she became, by the end, this sort of grandmother figure. Yeah. Uh, down to the moment with Paddington Bear in yeah. that sketch she did, you know, the, the nation's most loved children's character meeting what, who was the nation's most loved grandmother. It seemed just perfect. And I think that they realised during the, the older years of Queen Elizabeth's life that actually that, that grandparent image is a really safe and good one. And I think they're smart to be in a way applying it to to King Charles, because he's in his 70s, you know, he's, he's the age of a grandpa, he is a grandpa. So I think they're emphasising that softer, more emotional side of him. I, again, sorry, stop me if you need to, because I can go on forever. <laughs> so no, 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 I was going to say, that's a, a brilliant observation, because my the highlights for me of the Jubilee, the highlights for, for me of the coronation are watching him engage with his grandchildren. I mean, I, my heart yeah. melts, I explode. I that, so Well, and... And, and right. it's great. I mean, because why why shouldn't they emphasize that? You know, everyone, well, everyone, most people love their grandpa or their grandma. And most people love that kind of connection, that relationship. And I think that it's, it's such a, a, a sensible move. Um, it's not to make him less serious. He's a serious man with serious thoughts and duty and, and activities that he engages in. But I think that his mother showed the way there. Um, because she was, she did every stage. She she was in a way the nation's daughter at the beginning, and then, you know, passed through being the nation's mother. And then there was a complicated period where her annus horribilis and bad things were happening in her family. The marriages weren't lasting of her children. But again, things that people could identify with from their stages in life. So I think the same now is is the case with with him. And I think that that's another persona that we're given. Um, we may not know the real King Charles. Uh, we have a few hints from his past as, as the Prince of Wales and some leaked bits of personal uh, information and, and various biographies and things. But I think ultimately um, we, we're not meant to know the real version of them. They are, they are as a royal family, and he is the monarch and the head of state. They are symbolic. Um, and that's the bit of them that I think they like us to know and see, the symbolic part, the ceremonial part um these days in an era when you know so many people share so much of their lives with with each other yes i think there's a question of authenticity and so they too have to move with the times and add what feels like a bit of authenticity where they get to show the person a bit more um so i think it's really interesting to watch them do that some of that will be very carefully uh choreographed and and organized and some of it will be natural that i do remember i think it was about to mention it before after king charles came to buckingham palace after the death of his mother they i will never forget this it was really interesting they pulled up the car and he got out outside the gates of the palace and he didn't head for the palace he headed for the crowd and shook people's hands and this is in you know the the very beginning stages of his grief as a son and not only did he do that and go and shake hands and one woman even hugged him, I remember. She said, could she hug him? Um, but they had the BBC crew, maybe a metre away from him, complete with a microphone, picking up all the conversations. Um, and that was an extraordinary choice because they decided that not only would he go first to the people, 
but we would hear what they said to him and what he said to them. We would hear the, the sound of the hands shaking. We heard everything. That was very 21st century to me. Yeah. Um, and and in, in a really sensitive and sad moment for him and a moment of, of realizing this great responsibility as well that he knew was coming all his life. So I think that was, it was almost like watching something from the crown yeah. in real life. And then think back to the queen's coronation, uh, the, the late queen, and the discussions they had when it was televised about how far away the cameras had to be and how they couldn't zoom in too closely at the key moments because it would sort of profane something sacred about the ceremony. So those are the two extremes. That was the beginning of cameras. And by the end of Elizabeth's life, the cameras were literally in the face of her son and the microphones too, and we heard everything. So that says it all to me about how how they've let us in a bit more, um, but all of it so carefully, so carefully worked out and choreographed and planned. That would have be a great place to end, but I'm not going to. I have one more question. I watch, <laughs> I think I this is going to be your new nickname, Kinsey. <laughs> one, one more, more question. question. One more question. <laughs> so um, I watched a really good interview with you uh, on Neil Cavuto, where you were doing, uh, you were reacting to Harry and Meghan's two-hour car chase in parentheses at the time you said that you thought it was important that the royal family not respond i thought that was brilliant advice can you tell me could you tell us why you felt like it was important for the royal family to refrain from commenting on that event well, I don't really see what it had to do with them. That, that's the main reason. The royal family doesn't like responding to events, you know, about themselves unplanned anyway. So yeah. pick like the two people who didn't want to be part of that and who are potentially causing the most trouble in the public sphere for them. Why on earth would they comment on that? There's, there was nothing they could have said. I mean, say anything critical and they'd seem unsupportive, say anything supportive and they'd seem, well, not believable because nobody seemed to believe the story about the two hour car chase. Um, so I think that they did the right thing in, in not saying anything. But again, I go back to what I said earlier. I think it's also respectful. People see it as a snub and maybe there's an element of a snub. Maybe there are some people rubbing their hands in glee over this side going, ha ha, that'll show them. But I don't think that's the main motivation. I think they asked to be spared something which they can never truly be spared, which is attention for who they are. Um, but they certainly can minimize it. Um, I, I would argue they're not minimizing it in my opinion, obviously. I think yeah. most people might think that now. Um, but that's what they said they wanted. And I think the royal family just needs to take them constantly. If I were working in, in the royal, you know, in the royal PR office, I would be thinking every time I'm faced with one of these, like, well, they asked for us not to give them extra attention. They asked for us not to make life worse. So let's not say anything. How can it help? Um, th th saying something won't decrease the level of attention on them. If, if the royal family says something, it gets tons of coverage, um, yes. especially in relation to them. So that's why. And I think that, um, you know, I, I'm not a fan of what they've been doing since they left. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm sure that's uh, an exclusive for your podcast, but <laughs> I think that I, I think it's, you know, if we've got sympathy for them, in certain respects of their life. And, you know, I think it's only human to do so. Harry lost his mother in quite unusual circumstances. But tons of commenters constantly say when I say that on, on 
clips and on programs, I always read the comments afterwards and they say, well, yeah, I lost my mom at this age and I had a harder life and plenty of people lose a parent when they're kids. And that's all true. So it's not, you know, totally unique, his position, though the circumstances obviously are. Um, but anyway, I have sympathy for all that. I have sympathy for if they feel they're in a goldfish bowl. I have sympathy for Harry even feeling his his family stitched him up and used to land him in trouble in the press. I've got sympathy for all of it, whether even if I don't know if it's true or not, I, I have yeah. sympathy for how he might feel that way. Um, I just don't have a lot of sympathy for monetizing it or, or for where it looks like it doesn't make sense because if that stuff stresses you out and I completely get it, I think it would stress me out. Um, going and selling it to Netflix and Spotify, doesn't seem like a good idea for getting rid of it. It seems right. like it's going to it amplify seems like an attempt to get more of it. And, and then there's this cycle where it seems like an attempt to get more of it so that you can then make better money off getting more of it. And that's, I think how loads of people see this. So again, it's speculation to talk about someone's motivations and psychology because only their therapists may know. And, and boy, would that be an interesting therapy session to be a fly on the wall for. But <laughs> I think that, you know, speculatively, I have little sympathy for what looks like uh, trading off the very thing you said you wanted to escape. And I have very little sympathy for the idea that you felt you were betrayed by your family. So you then sold a book full of private things. So betray your family. To the highest bidder. And... That for me is why I'm not a huge fan of their work since they left the royal family. Jonathan, how can people keep up with you and, and stay on top of what you're up to? They can find my website at jonathansachadotti.com. That's, uh, I hope, somewhere you might write it on screen. I'm, so, I'm uh, going to write uh, it everywhere. No, one, no one's going to spell that. <laughs> and, uh, and I would say uh, they'll find me on Twitter or X as it is now. They'll find me on TikTok, on Instagram. Facebook, um, is there anywhere I'm forgetting? So yeah, I, I, I always love to, to see people's comments on stuff I do as well, because it's actually often some of the smartest stuff comes, you know, below the line. Um, oh, and so nice of I would be on Well, you know, so, sometimes kind of a lot of nonsense comes there too, but yeah. so people, have, people have some interesting things to say. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, they can, they can follow me in all those places and I will be really delighted if anyone chooses to. It's been real pleasure being with you today, Kinsey, as well. Thank you. Thank you for letting me ask you um, a thousand one more questions. It's been great fun. <laughs> <laughs>